0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World, I'm Tommy Vitor.
1: I'm Ben Rhodes.
0: Ben, you're in Budapest, that's pretty cool.
1: I'm in Budapest, I'm in Hungary. Yeah, I figured I'd, you know, instead of just talking about what's happening here, I'd actually come here and talk to some folks and actually, you know, meeting some people who are worldos out here, which is always nice to hear.
0: Man, that's cool. Uh, would you say that the folks in Budapest, uh, the government officials, are more committed to democracy than the Iowa Democratic Party or, or no?
1: I'd say there's some striking similarities in the politics of Hungary and the politics of the U.S. right now. But the Iowa caucus... Uh, uh, is giving everybody a run for its money here.
0: I got to tell you, man. I, I got back from Iowa yesterday. I find myself angrier every hour that goes by at the fallout from this disaster and the amazing lack of faith uh, it is understandably giving people in the Democratic Party in uh, the fairness of elections. It's just, it's just so inexcusable and so infuriating. I just can't even believe it happened.
1: Well, th- there are so. First of all, I get on a eleven hour flight to come out here. And I left at like, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. Iowa time. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of psyched that I was going to be able to miss all of the freaking out and just land and find out who won. Right. And then I landed and it like I didn't understand what had happened. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while. Like just it made no sense. But then, you know, what we forget is everybody around the world is watching our primary because everybody wants Trump to lose. Right. And so. They're all watching the Democratic primary really closely and we look totally ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. know it's a secondary concern, but like, the global ripples of the Iowa Democratic Party not being able to report results is yet another blow uh, for the standing of democracy in our world. So let's hope that's uh, a low point that we can recover from.
0: We laugh because we cannot cry. Uh, Okay, today on the show, we're going to cover the following. We're going to talk about Brexit, the coronavirus, and the latest there. Some updates on Venezuela since Juan Guaido, the opposition leader down in Venezuela, was at the State of the Union last night. The expansion of the Muslim ban, lots and lots of fallout from Jared Kushner's peace plan in quotes, and then landmine policy, because what we needed in this world is more landmines just strewn about. So without any further ado, Ben, uh, let's start with Brexit. So Brexit has happened Uh, at 11 p.m. on Friday, January 31st. Britain left the EU after nearly 50 years of membership Members of the European Parliament sang "Old Lang Syne to their British colleagues. It was sort of a sad, poignant, weird moment. Uh, the process itself took, what, like four years to happen, Clearly, judging on uh, Boris Johnson's campaign slogan, people in success, people in the UK were just ready to stop talking about Brexit to get it over with. But that doesn't mean the process is really over. Now the UK has to negotiate trade deals with the EU. They have to negotiate trade deals with the US. There's a million little details that they're going to be working through for a long time. Um, It's weird that we've been talking about Brexit for so long and how potentially terrible it could be for people in the UK, for the global economy. And then it just sort of happens. And I mean, I guess curious what you think Ben like I guess a lot of the pain you know in terms of financial markets or business decisions was priced into the decision and like had been felt over time or maybe some of the most of the pain is just ahead of the UK with these negotiations but the whole thing feels weirdly anticlimactic and maybe that's just the problem with these like slow developing disasters is it's hard to adequately explain the fallout but what do you think?
1: Well, I, look, I actually think it, it, it's very much because we still don't really know what the terms are, you know, mm-hmm. because essentially the vote to Brexit still leaves all of these questions about the future nature of the trading relationship between the UK and the EU to be negotiated over the course of the next year mm-hmm. and inclu- and also kind of how the movement of peoples is going to be handled so you know all the things that could cause the economic fallout uh, many of them are just kind of punted into this new round of negotiations about what the nature of the trading relationship is going to be mm-hmm. and you know Boris you know in part to sure Brexit happens and in part, you know, in his view, to give himself some leverage has, has made clear that, you know, in the parliament voted that they're going to leave no matter what the outcome of those negotiations are. So the reality is we still don't really know what the terms are going to be, because until we know what the future of the UK relationship with the EU is, we don't know the fallout. And so it's somewhat delayed. It's you know, now kind mm-hmm. of delayed in this next round of negotiations. You know, they are going to Brexit. There are terms for how that's going to happen. But we don't know is what's going to replace essentially the the UK's, you know, integration with the European Union. And, and so the irony of this whole thing is that while they want to get out of the EU, they're like likely to be stuck in these negotiations with the EU, at least for this year and, and probably beyond. Yeah. So Brexit is still going to be not quite as prominent, but still there. And I think some of this economic pain and financial pain, um, yeah, some of it may just ha- will play out over time. But a lot of it is dependent on, on the outcome of the, the next round of negotiations about what the trade deal is between the UK and the EU. And I think markets and businesses are are waiting for those negotiations to see. Uh, what transpires,
0: and I guess there's probably some political pain to come potentially too. If if Scotland decides to skex it to leave the UK as well, or you know, there's talk of Northern Ireland joining Ireland, so there could be ways that uh, the UK continues to shrink over time that I imagine wouldn't make leaders there particularly happy.
1: Yeah, I mean, if Scotland follows Megxit, you know, that obviously would be the most dramatic thing that could happen. I mean, look, part of the thing, and, and some of this is, I think, people like us, you know get into trouble sometimes because this is true of Trump as well. Like the consequences of these decisions take time to become apparent in the real world and can take years. And so, you know, we'll know in five years what the fallout is, you know, because we'll know within five years whether there's a huge economic hit, whether, you know, financial institutions relocate from London to Europe, uh, whether it's a complete shit show in terms of, Brits who are working in the EU or EU citizens who are living in the UK and whether they need to leave. Uh, and of course, importantly, whether Northern Ireland either has violence or wants to unify with Ireland or Scotland exits. So, you know, I do think some of us get into trouble because we're talking about all these consequences. And when people don't see them happen right away, they're like, oh, everybody was just, you know, too alarmist, too hyperbolic. When the reality is like these things, you know, takes, five years to know what the outcome is of really big decisions, if not more. And so uh, this is a useful reminder that it remains to be seen uh, whether Boris Johnson can pull this off and minimize the pain to the UK economy and preserve the unity of the UK. If he can do that, you know, that would obviously be an achievement. But uh, I still tend to believe that a lot of those consequences are still coming.
0: Yeah, I do too. Uh, ben, before we go on to more serious issues in one of the 400 group texts we're in, someone just sent around a quote from Rick Gorka, who was a Romney spokesman in 2012. Now, uh, for those listening, you probably already know that Mitt Romney uh, decided to vote for impeaching Donald Trump today. Uh, it was a pretty brave move. And so this guy, Rick Gorka, who was his spokesman in 2012, tweeted uh, a statement attacking Romney for that decision. Ben, you'll remember Rick Orca because there's this infamous video of Romney on a foreign trip in 2012, and he hadn't talked to the press in days and days and days. And so two reporters in his pool started screaming at him at this Polish site <laughs> when one of them yelled, what about your gaffes? And another is like, do you have a message for the Palestinian people? And yeah, Rick Orca yeah. was the one quoted saying, kiss my ass. This is a holy site for the Polish people. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it's one of the best days of, uh, (laughs) like, that whole Romney trip, and we can pay tribute to Romney here in a moment, but first we can relive this. I mean, we're in the White House, and, you know, it was a close race, right? And if Romney had pulled off some super successful foreign trip, that would have really helped him. And so we're a little worried about this trip in a way, because it's a chance for him to look presidential. And the first thing is he he lands in London, and remember, he insults Mm -hmm. London that's about to host the Olympics by saying that they're not ready, and that there could be... You know, crime and all this stuff. And then Boris Johnson, uh, of all people, is the mayor of London. And he stands up at a rally in front of like tens of thousands of people. And he's yelling like, there's this guy, this guy called Mitt Romney. <laughs> Basically, Romney's like, thoroughly humiliated in London. Then he goes to Israel and he I don't even remember how, but he, you know, insults the Palestinians, mm-hmm. which, you know, people used to care about, I guess, now, now uh, with Trump, that doesn't matter. And he makes a series of gaffes. <laughs> and so this was like the culmination of this trip. And also, frankly, as much as I like Phil Rucker and Ashley Parker, who are the, yep. the reporters – it was just a good sign of like the absurdity of the media because they're just yelling out like, what about your gas? <laughs> what
0: about you know? <laughs> your gaffes? It's a funny thing.
1: <laughs> I forgot that goon though. I forgot that goon like walking out of them like, hey, this is the holy site for the Polish people.
0: Kiss my ass. This is a holy site for the Polish people. Rick Gorka, one of the funniest quotes ever made on the campaign trail. Well, anyway, we just sort of made fun of Mitt Romney for a minute there. But credit to him for taking a very brave vote. But man, uh, I just need something to laugh about today.
1: Yeah, it's been a hard week, so we needed a lot about that. I um I will say that like uh it's so unusual to see a Republican like just do the right thing. <laughs> so it's like completely shocking. And it totally points up the complete cowardice, obviously, of people like Murkowski and Collins, never mind uh Lindsey Graham, right? Uh mm-hmm. but kudos to kudos to Mitt Romney, because not only did he do it, but he his speech I think laid out as plainly as you can, like why. This whole thing is absurd, and it's obvious that Trump is guilty and should have been
0: removed. You know, so yeah, yeah, it was brave. Um, all right, let's talk about something decidedly uh, less fun. So, last week we talked with uh, a public health expert named Doctor Abdul Sayed about how dangerous the coronavirus is or is not and how virulent it is. So we just want to update folks on what has happened since that conversation. So the latest numbers I've seen are that around 25,000 people have been infected in at least 24 countries with about 500 fatalities. There are almost undoubtedly many, many more who have been infected with the virus, but just haven't reported it. Um, The Chinese government has basically locked down the city of Wuhan, where 11 million people live. Imagine that. They're also clamping down on travel to other cities in the region. Uh, There are Americans who've been evacuated out of China and then quarantined on military bases in California. There's this entire cruise ship in Japan uh, where folks got the virus that has since been quarantined. Airlines are suspending flights to China. Uh, China is starting to crack down on media coverage of the virus, which is pretty unnerving. Um, So as Abdul mentioned last week, the coronavirus is a lot less lethal than SARS. We're talking about 2% Two percent fatality rate instead of ten percent for SARS. That said, we are probably at the very beginning of the outbreak. Um, so Ben, I guess, I guess what I wanted to ask you is that I am a little surprised that we haven't seen more political or economic fallout from how quickly this disease seems to be spreading. Yet there was one day when markets really cratered, but you would think that you know cutting off air travel to China of all places would ha- be seen as a potentially enormously disruptive thing to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised, too, because essentially, you know, China's been on some form of lockdown. Uh, I've talked to friends in like Hong Kong who said that there's like it's like a ghost town relative to how it normally is, you know, just the, the lost revenue in China from people not being able to travel there, people not being able to travel within China. you know, you would think would end up slowing down the Chinese economy uh which you know should then have an impact on on the global economy so you know i think it's something to continue to watch i think that you know the question about fatalities really does matter here too because if you start to see fatalities in other countries then not only do you have obviously the the you know the human cost and the public health concern um but you also have you know probably more knock-on economic effects and so this too i think you know we, we have to see whether we're out of the worst of it. And if we're out of the worst of it, then I think we avoid some of the potential economic blowback. Um, it does just feel to me like a space to watch in the in the global economy generally is China, right? Because, you know, the trade war uh, took some toll on them uh, and then this this virus on top of it. And then, you know, there have been some rumblings of, of other problems um, in the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. And, and so if, you know, one of the things that could initiate uh, some kind of global economic Downturn would be if the Chinese economy really slows, yeah. um, but we have, and, and this could be a trigger for that. So we haven't, we haven't yet seen that come to to for the fore. But you know, I, I think we're not out of the woods with this thing yet, and you know, I continue to be concerned about the preparedness of our administration to handle it, given that they eliminated the, the coordinator for these types of diseases in the White House and and slashed funding for preparedness. So this will continue to. I think be a danger until there's a sense from the the World Health Organization, you know, that the that, that the worst is behind us. Yeah. Uh, we're not quite there yet.
0: Yeah, agreed. Okay. So speaking of the worst being behind us, Trump's State of the Union address was last night. I luckily was on a plane. I couldn't watch it. And frankly, after that Iowa debacle, I'm not sure I could have stomached it. But one person who did watch was uh, Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido. He was in the chamber. He was recognized by Trump uh, in in that moment as a legitimate president of Venezuela. Although they've recognized him as that as the leader of Venezuela for a long time, so it's been a while since we talked about Venezuela. Uh, so we'll give you the quick backstory. Most of the international community believes that the 2018 re-election of President Nicolas Maduro was fraudulent and illegitimate. Because Juan Guaido was the president of their national assembly at the time, Guaido and his allies cited a provision of Venezuela's constitution uh, that they believe makes him the president uh, or acting president uh, in the wake of an illegitimate election. And then he declared himself the acting president. The U.S. uh, followed suit quickly and the U.S push the international community to also recognize Guaido as president of Venezuela. So this is, you know, this happened a while back and it has had no actual impact on uh, getting Maduro out of power. I wonder why Trump highlighted this last night. It seemed like he wants to talk about socialism generally, uh, sort of previewing a bunch of attacks on Bernie Sanders. Maybe Trump is supposed to do a press conference with Guaido today on Wednesday, but he canceled it probably because of Romney's vote to impeach him. Ben, what did you make of Guaido being at the State of the Union and the bipartisan uh, reception he got, the very positive bipartisan reception, I should say?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I think, you know, this policy has been a complete failure. You know, you remember we were talking about this a lot, like when this first happened a year ago, and the the signaling from Trump and Pompeo and Bolton was that Maduro was going to be gone imminently. You know, Mm -hmm. and Mike Pompeo even said, you know, claimed that there was an intelligence report that there was a plane on the tarmac ready to take Maduro away. You know, you had General Rubio tweeting <laughs> the reports from the front about, uh, you know, how they were, uh, you know, desertions in the National Guard. And, and here we are, and Maduro is, is entrenched. Uh, and there's been some very good reporting on this about how he feels more confident than he has in a long time. And that's in large part because the Russians and the Chinese have moved in pretty aggressively to shore him up. Um, And the Russians and the Chinese also very much want to get their hands on that that national oil infrastructure um, as as well. And and so we're in this position where the U.S. sanctions have have further hurt the Venezuelan people and there are further flows of people out of Venezuela. I think there's something like five million Venezuelans out of the country now. Uh, The humanitarian situation in the country is worse. And Guaido is farther away from power today than he was when Trump recognized him. Um, I mean, I think that's just the basic assessment. And Guaido's been eager to get this kind of uh, meeting with Trump. He was recently in Florida. And when I look at the State of the Union, what bothers me so much about it uh, is this is about domestic politics. You know, Trump thinks that, first of all, he's appealing to Venezuelan Americans in Florida and Cuban Americans in Florida. Who support this type of hardline policy, and so it's not hard to deduce it. It's an election year, mm-hmm. and therefore everything Trump is doing in this so too much more so even than a normal president in a re-election year, is just kind of crass domestic politics. So he has Guido up there, who a guy who he's basically ignored because Trump has lost interest in this policy. He has him in the box just so he can have a essentially you know a little bump in South Florida. And I also agree, you know, it's probably part of his general case against socialism that he's going to make, but. I know why, you know, Guaido's trying to present himself as having this international support. I think he's risks just looking like a stooge of the United States. You mm-hmm. know, it's not a good look. It's not a good look to kind of be a political prop for Donald Trump, um, you know, who's not popular in Latin America. You know, so I, I think you know you've seen some rumblings of dissatisfaction with Guaido, complaints about corruption in the Venezuelan opposition. And again, I think Guaido's got to be real careful here that he's so aligned with Trump that he looks like an extension of a U.S. regime change policy in Venezuela and not like a guy who's just trying to uphold the institutions of Venezuela. Um, So I think this is kind of a misplay by him and Trump. And frankly, I'm really disappointed in the Democrats. It's a tough situation to be in. And we want to support the Venezuelan people's desire for human rights and democracy. I get, you know, applauding for Guaido, I think that's complicated, but I get why some people want to do that. But they haven't mounted any critique of Trump's policy, Mm -hmm. you you know. So he's kind of gotten this pass, and there's even this kind of appearance that this is like a a good popular thing he's done, when it's just made the situation worse. Um, And so it's another example of kind of ceding the field to Trump, where he gets to define you know issues like Iran and Venezuela, because there's not enough of a sustained criticism against what he's doing. I guess, you know, Iran, there was more pushback and that seemed to have an impact. I'd like to see more pushback on this policy because Trump is just piling up these sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba. The Venezuelan people and the Cuban people are suffering. Those governments are more entrenched than ever. And Russia and China are the ones benefiting because those governments are turning to Russia and China, For support. And so what is this achieving? And literally nothing other than the punishment it's doling out on on the people of those countries.
0: Yeah, by any measure, I think the policy has been a a pretty big failure. Speaking of policies that are a big failure, uh, last week, Trump added six countries to the Muslim ban list. So Those countries are Nigeria, Myanmar, or Burma, whatever you wanna call it, Eritrea, Sudan, Tanzania, and Kyrgyzstan. That brings the total number of countries on the list to 13. The specific restrictions vary country by country. It's not all in one, but they include uh, travel restrictions, restrictions on immigrant visas, restrictions to the diversity lottery. Uh, It's worth noting that, one, Nigeria is the biggest country in Africa, so you're putting massive restrictions uh, on a country with a huge population two Muslims uh, in Myanmar or Burma have been fleeing a genocide. So this is particularly cruel to them. Ben, you know, the administration wants us to call this a travel ban. I refuse to do that. We know what it is. It's a ban on a religion. Um, these are restrictions on countries with big Muslim populations. So they go into place on February 22nd. You know, I think the previous ban impacted 135 million people. So this will be way, way more. What do you think the impact continuing to add to this ban will be?
1: Yeah, I think this, you know, we don't pay as much attention to this anymore, but it gets huge attention in these countries, obviously, and around the world. You know, practically speaking, Trump, you know, essentially is prohibiting a quarter of Africa's population uh, from being able to apply for immigrant visas to the United States. Uh, I mean, it's it's an astonishing scale. I mean, Nigeria is is not, is the biggest country by far in Africa. And, And so just the message that sends, the exclusionary message that sends, uh, you know, I I think it it will kind of permanently change the view of the United States in these countries, right? So Nigeria, hugely important country, right? Biggest country in Africa, growing economy, like, you know, a country that has its own challenges with terrorism and Boko Haram, all kinds of U.S. interests in Africa, like are focused on on Nigeria. And imagine the impact this is going to have in the long term on the people from the, the country, never mind all these other countries. And, you know, frankly, immigration from these countries has enriched the United States because of people, you know, who come here and, and build a better life. But frankly, also because, you know, oftentimes the people who are educated in the United States from these countries and settle for a time in the United States and then go back, you know, they end up being the people who are running these countries. Um, and now those people are going to be going to China or to other places. So there are going to be long term consequences for for U.S. interests in addition to just the, 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 the moral and credibility blow that we're taking. And and I should say that, like, it's a particular tragedy, too, with Myanmar. You know, there have been some very vibrant immigrant communities that have come here from Myanmar over the decades, persecuted populations who resettled as refugees in the United States, some of them in Iowa, Tommy, actually, <laughs> back when I used to knock doors in Iowa when the mm-hmm. caucus. And, and I should add that we, this is a good example of how our example can be leveraged, because we wanted a lot of other countries to take Rohingya refugees. And part of what we had to do is lead by example. So when there was a bit of an outflow, uh, you know, several tens of thousands of boat people from uh, Myanmar, for instance, I think in 2015, you know, we had to, to try to take our share of Rohingya so that we could then have some standing to go around and, and encourage countries like Indonesia and Malaysia to take Rohingya. And we should note at this time that the Indian Muslim ban, right, that you and I talked about in the last pod. Uh, particularly affects people, the Rohingya, because, you know, particularly restricts Muslim immigration from Bangladesh. Right. And that's where the Rohingya are. So they're getting they're getting screwed across the board here because, you know, they've been driven out of uh, Myanmar. They're stuck in Bangladesh. They can't go to India, which is the, the, the nearby neighbor. They can't be resettled in the U.S., The U.S. is not going around trying to get other people to take them. So there there are real humanitarian consequences here, too.
0: Yeah, it is a a humanitarian catastrophe. Okay, let's let's turn to Israel for a minute uh, and the fallout from the Trump-Jared Kushner Middle East peace plan, if you want to call it that. It was more of a uh, giveaway to the Israelis. So uh, Kushner is learning the hard way that Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu will always stab you in the back if it suits him politically. So last week, we talked about the Trump plan, which would basically give the Israeli government all the territory it wants. It allowed the continued occupation of the Palestinians. It allowed for continued settlement construction. and Basically, it gave the Palestinian side scraps to maybe someday form a state if they're allowed. Hours after that plan was released, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, announced that he planned to annex Israeli settlements in the West Bank. But then he mysteriously walked it back, saying the White House had asked them to wait a while it turns out that giving Bibi almost everything he wanted was not enough for uh, Netanyahu's far-right allies, who are now accusing Jared of betraying Netanyahu. So again, all Netanyahu has agreed to do is hold off on annexing these settlements until after the election, which is on March 2nd. But here's some quotes from one of Bibi's top settler allies that show how mad they are about that. So uh, one is, Jared took a knife and put it in Netanyahu's back. Uh, Jared misled everybody. Gentlemen, don't act this way. That was my favorite. Um, This guy also said that delaying annexation would cost Netanyahu the election, which really gives up the whole game and the whole point of this plan and the the obvious reason why they're mad. So, Ben, I guess gentlemen um, dehumanize the Palestinian people when politically advantageous and then cut them out of negotiations and take their land, but they don't. uh, Backtrack on a promise to Bibi.
1: Well... Yeah, giving up the game. And look, you're never going to give enough to satisfy the Israeli far right uh, on the Palestinian issue. And like what we've all known, right, is that clearly the direction of the people who've been driving the train uh, in terms of the Israeli government is towards annexation and towards, you know, essentially wanting to make permanent the occupation. And, you know, Jared was essentially giving them the wink, wink, go ahead. Then I think, you know, it feels like what happened is it was really embarrassing when and within 24 hours of this peace plan coming out, then you know, announces the obvious conclusion of that peace plan, which is annexation. Maybe there's some behind the scenes, you know, outreach in uh, panic because this is going to further humiliate Jared if that's possible and Ned now puts us on the back burner, but everybody knows what the game is here, right? The intention is clear. This is what the Israeli right wants to do, and Trump has tacitly approved it. So I don't I don't know why anybody on either side is surprised. Like, Jared shouldn't be surprised that these people will, you know, trash him uh, at given the opportunity, uh, because what they really want to do is move as fast as possible annexation. You know, the Israelis shouldn't be surprised that Jared essentially somehow wants to have it both ways, you know, uh, he wants to give Israel everything at once, but look like this is a peace plan, right? Uh, it, those things are not reconcilable. Mm-hmm. So this is part of the problem of of lying, right, of saying that you're putting out a peace plan when it's anything but a peace plan. Uh, and So that when one party acts to the obvious, you know, and, and obviously in line with your plan, you know, you, you, you want them to walk it back. Uh, it ju- it just shows that this whole thing is is kind of dishonest. I mean this is really election will be interesting to watch. The third one now. And you know, Netanyahu this is existential for him, right? Because he's under indictment. In, uh, if he loses it, it may not just be the prime ministership he's lo- losing, you know, he
0: he may be looking at, at a sentence. Yeah, he might be uh, end up in jail. I mean, the other a lot bigger update on Jared's little plan is that it was unanimously rejected by the Arab League. And so you know the, the Arab League is a, a 22 member organization of countries whose populations are primarily Arabic speaking. They have a big role in any Middle East peace process discussions. I'm sure that Jared and the gang thought that they had bought off the Arab League's uh, support through... You know, silence on human rights issues and by assassinating uh, officials in Iran, but uh, no dice for them, unfortunately. Uh, The Arab League said that Trump's plan goes against UN resolutions on the Middle East peace process. It contradicts the principles of the peace process and that the organization won't engage with the U.S. about the plan or its implementation. This all happened at an Arab League meeting in Cairo uh, last weekend, I believe, where the Palestinian Authority and President Mahmoud Abbas detailed all the ways he had been tried to be contacted by the Trump administration through the CIA, refused that conversation. And now he says he plans to outline a plan of his own soon. So it seems pretty clear that any deal in the traditional sense where one side would negotiate with the other and they'd sort of come to an agreement is dead. The only deal that could be had here is something that's just forced upon the Palestinian people.
1: Yeah. And the irony of that, right, is that the when we were in office, the line from the Israelis, and the Israeli government supporters in Washington was, Peace can never be imposed, it has to be negotiated through the parties. You know, and that was in response to the UN, perhaps, taking positions, or the Obama administration taking positions. Now it's the opposite. It's <laughs> the Israeli government and Trump saying, no, these are the deal that we're going to impose on you, and you have to take it. Uh, the Arab League has rejected it, Europe's rejected it. You know, one interesting subplot, Tommy, that I'll give a little teaser of some of the conversations I've been having here. Mm-hmm. Today, I talked to two different people about the very interesting relationship between Netanyahu and Viktor Orban here which is they've become very close over the years. And it's an interesting marriage of convenience. You know, they both share kind of a a far-right politics, a nationalist politics. But what's kind of interesting about it is, you know, you could see, you know, for for Israel, it's useful to have Hungary uh, supporting them within Europe, right, to have somebody in Europe that will support the Israeli government's positions on Palestinians uh, at times. But what's particularly peculiar about it is that here in Hungary, there's been a, a really aggressive campaign against George Soros for several years mm-hmm. called the Stop Soros campaign. That's literally what it's called. Um, and they're giant billboards that you know, kind of depict George Soros as managing this massive conspiracy against Hungary. Soros is a hu- Hungarian and, you know, widely seen as having some anti-Semitic undertones, uh, to yeah. put it mildly. Um, and yet, you know, BB has kind of embraced Orban, and that's kind of given him a bit of a pass for some of the dog whistles that people hear here in Hungary, right? It does remind me of the US, where similarly, you know, Trump's supporters, there's plenty of anti-Semitic uh, dog whistles, anti-George Soros conspiracies, you know, discussions of kind of worldwide elites trying to control things with bad historical echoes. Obviously, that the horrific shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue was motivated by a guy who hated refugees. And yet, Trump's uh, embrace from Netanyahu Kind of gives him a pass for that behavior, and they try to redirect the anti Semitism discussion around criticism of Israeli policies. It's interesting to think about how Trump, Orban, Netanyahu all have this shared kind of interest in promoting their own political interests and their own brand of nationalism. And in a way, that leaves the virulent anti Semitism underneath the surface, you know, gets less confronted in a way because there's this kind of validation from the prime minister of Israel for these two leaders, Donald Trump and Viktor Orban. It, 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 uh, hearing this today, you know, w- was very, you know, unfortunately familiar to me uh, as, as to how we've seen the politics of the Netanyahu relationship uh, play out in, 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 America.
0: Yeah. It's uh, BB's making friends with all the worst people. So is Trump. And it just feels like all a piece of a bigger puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple more quick things here uh, that I think are worth talking about. One, is the U.S. government is currently prosecuting a 31-year-old former CIA engineer named Joshua Schulte in what has been described as the largest disclosure of classified CIA information in the agency's history. So these were the so-called Vault 7 leaks, uh, which came out a few years ago, and released some of the most sensitive hacking tools that the agency has to WikiLeaks. And so, you know, we don't know. We don't know about this case. But what's sort of spilling out into public as the court uh, case starts is apparently the FBI also found child pornography on a server. This guy managed, um, after he was arrested, somehow he managed to get access to a cell phone in prison. Schulte did and create a fake Twitter account that Schulte then used to accuse the government of planting that information on his computer. I don't know the facts here. I just, those details jumped out at me. But what it really made me think about as I was reading more about this case is that, You know, we're seeing more of these leaks and the U.S. is creating these incredibly powerful cyber weapons and spying tools that are so much more susceptible to leaking and getting into the wrong hands than any other past weapon, right? I mean, there's not a lot of risk of like an F-22 fighter jet getting emailed to some hacker in China. And I just don't know that we have even come close to appropriately grappling with the risk inherent in the creation of those tools or the need to create safeguards against it. And, you know, maybe that process is happening and maybe it's secret and maybe this prosecution is part of it. But, man, this shit just keeps happening and it's pretty fucking dangerous.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, there's several things that I think are worrying here, right? I mean, the first is there's just been, a, you know, a number of pretty <laughs> dramatic and damaging leaks um, or, you know, uh, breaches in the intelligence community in recent years, right? I mean, Snowden gets the most attention, but there have been a number of them. I think beyond that, though, you're right. There, there's a bit of a hubris in it that, you know, we somehow are more advanced and, and we're ahead of the game here when when I don't think we are. I mean, I, I think when it comes to these kind of cyber tools, cyber weapons, um, the Russians and Chinese are, you know, running even with us in the race, uh, if not ahead in some ways. And they're non-governmental actors who are quite uh, skillful <laughs> with this stuff in a tiny little Vulnerability can be exploited uh, to essentially proliferate these weapons, right? In a mm-hmm. way that, as you point out, was harder to proliferate nuclear weapons or certainly, you know, uh, conventional weapons. And there, there's similar challenges with our companies, you know, who might be selling technologies to people who can then use that and turn them into to, to weapons as well. Uh, whether you know, hacking, right. you know, they can sell technology that is meant for one purpose it might even be defensive purpose, and that can be uh, repurposed for, for offensive hacking and, and offensive cyber warfare so I, <laughs> what we need is some obviously security around what we're doing in the US government but again I also think we need a, a regulatory framework around how different technologies are developed, shared utilized, protected um, because it feels like the wild west out there you know um, and it, it feels like uh, this stuff is proliferating much faster than we're able to secure it and given how much everybody's life is online, and given how much our critical infrastructure is connected to the internet, and given that we're moving into a phase of the Internet of Things, right, which is basically means that the internet, you, you know, every device in your house, you know, from your dishwasher to your refrigerator, you know, is connected to the internet. I mean, I, I just think there needs to be a much more robust effort to stop and take a look at this stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right, the last thing I had then was, you know, just when you think the world uh, couldn't be more terrible. Last week we read that the Trump administration reversed a prohibition that Obama had put in place on the use of anti-personnel landmines outside of the Korean Peninsula. And like just one of those announcements that, that felt like a gut punch because it's so obvious that more landmines in the world is a terrible thing. There was a huge debate over landmine policy during the Obama administration. The problem, as people probably know, with landmines is that historically speaking, they are far more likely to kill innocent civilians well after the fact than enemy soldiers. When you're using a landmine, they don't discriminate between a child, livestock, a U.S. soldier, or a bad guy. The Pentagon says uh, it will ultimately shift the types of landmines that can self-destruct after a set period of time and maybe have some safeguards. But, you know, I frankly think we all should be pretty skeptical about those claims, about them actually working and about the time frame for implementing uh, those types of safeguards. Additionally, there's a lot of defense experts out there that say landmines generally are just not that useful on the modern bat- battlefield. In fact, they, can, they were used in 1991, uh, I believe, in the Gulf War. And some people believe that they actually constrained the movement of U.S. troops at the time. So questionable utility. Um, ben, you know, can you talk a little bit about that debate from back in the Obama days and maybe also explain why there's this exception for a landmine use in Korea?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's this uh, international treaty banning the use of landmines that the U.S. had never come into. And actually, there's a woman, uh, Jody Williams, who got the Nobel Peace Prize for that. If you want to Google uh, an inspiring story of an activist changing the world, Um, that's a good place to start. And and, because landmines, you know, in places like Colombia, Cambodia, they've just devastated people because, you know, part of what happens is, you know, a bunch of landmines are put down and then, you know, they stay there for years, decades, right? And so you've got, you know, civilians and children, you know, getting blown up, you know, long after, you know, even there's some battle taking place, right? So this is a real danger. Samantha Power, you know, had advocated really aggressively for the United States to join this treaty. There was a big debate And we landed in the place where we essentially banned them everywhere except Korea. Our military said that essentially kind of their war planning in Korea, you know, involves a lot of landmines. You know, there's this huge demilitarized zone. And, you know, presumably like that's just kind of been part of the plan that's been on the shelf for decades, you know, relies on the deployment of landmines. And but, you know, I have to think that there are other ways. Uh, You know, we have a lot of conventional weapons. And the, the the benefit of setting a positive example, you know, outweighed. You know, I think this kind of legacy issue of the Korean Peninsula being this kind of frozen conflict from you know the middle of the 20th century. So that was essentially why we took the partial step of coming in line with this ban on landmines everywhere except the Korean Peninsula. I think what was so the reason it was such a gut punch to me. You know, part of then is it's, it's, it, first of all, you stack up the arms control agreements they've shredded, right? You know the all the nuclear treaties with Russia, except the you know the New Star Treaty, which is expiring, the Arms Trade Treaty, which was meant to restrict you know the uh, trade in, in guns around the world, uh, they got rid of that as a sop to the NRA. Now landmines, but also the there's no reason to do this. Like I can't imagine that there was like randomly in the fourth year of the Trump administration you know, a groundswell of agitation to be able to use landmines,
0: right? (laughs) It's like they framed it as like, you know, a, a broader effort to like, you know, reintroduce tactical nuclear weapons and give the military all kinds of flexibility to do things that ultimately will probably kill more civilians than anything else, which is pretty depressing.
1: Yeah, what are we doing here, right? And so it's this kind of weird mix of just, yeah, here's one more Obama thing that we can take out, you know, plus like, if they really do sincerely believe that we need to be using landmines around the world, like that's just something that we know from history ends up killing civilians. Right. So that mm-hmm. they're basically saying, um, you know, we want to have the more flexibility to kill civilians, you know, at the same time, by the way, because the Senate Democrats caved on the ban on low yield nuclear weapons in the uh, Defense Authorization Act. There are now reports that there could be like the deployment of low-yield nuclear weapons, i.e. nuclear weapons that are somehow like more usable, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, on submarines. I mean, what, what are we doing here? Where is this going? You know, um, yeah, t- talk about something that where the consequences might not be apparent immediately, but like, w- w- you know, this just feels like a very worrying direction because not only do I not want us to use it, but we're kind of green lighting the Russias and Chinas of the world, you know, to, hey, you know. Remember all those norms that we built. Remember all those treaties that were signed. Like, let's all just scrap those and go, you know, go back to the pre-World War One days when nothing was off limits. I mean, it, it's this kind of worrying mixture of anti-Obama extremism and anti-any international restriction um, that seems to govern a lot of their decisions, but. It just seemed totally random to me that they're doing this uh, now.
0: Yeah. There's no adjective that you can put ahead of nuclear weapon that makes me feel better about it. There is no euphemism yeah, low- when it comes to a fucking <laughs> nuclear weapon that makes it okay.
1: Uh, yeah. Low yield nuclear weapons. Right. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just to think about what, what that's implying. Like, oh, this isn't, this isn't too bad of a nuclear weapon.
0: Yeah. We were back in uh, crazy Nixon in the middle of Vietnam escalating everything without it- any regard to civilian casualties territory.
1: Well, which is actually where, you know, the most of the landmine outreach came from, Cambodia, because yeah. that devastated Vietnam, Vietnam and Cambodia, the use of landmines. But the one thing I wanted to add to this is like the, this whole low yield nuclear weapons thing. You know, we've been trying to get India and Pakistan, which, you know, is a, the preeminent nuclear flashpoint in the world. They've been, you know, considering trying to develop more, quote unquote, usable nuclear weapons, maybe, you know, like low yield. And and, and we, we give away all of our, you know, uh, capacity to say, you know, you need to come in line with international standards, at least of other uh, countries that have nuclear weapons here when, when we're developing those types of weapons, too. So this has knock on effects where we're in a weaker position to try to pressure other countries to abide by certain standards when, when we ourselves, you know, we don't hold ourselves to those standards.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, all right, man. Well, that's all I had uh, on the agenda. I promise uh, to all the world out there that we will have more foreign policy news at the front of our brains next week when it is not full of uh rage and fury about the fact that it's like three days later and we still don't know the full results of the Iowa caucuses yeah. and I just saw a tweet where they accidentally pushed out a bunch of Bernie vote and labeled it as Deval Patricks so things are oh, not, not getting the, any better they're getting I'm worse
1: sure that'll do well with the uh some of the conspiracy theorists. Under.
0: Yeah. Really, really helping. Um, like they're going to fix it. They noticed, everyone noticed it. They're correcting it, but Jesus Christ, you guys I, fucked I, up so everything.
1: I listened, I, I was haunted, Tommy. Um, and I should add next week, I'll, I'll have more about this trip that I'm on, which is in- interesting. And it's still, you know, here a couple more days, but the, um, I listened to the great, uh, on the ground in Iowa series that you did, um, for Potsy of America. And I, I, I remember, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you interviewed the head of the Iowa Democratic Party. Yep. And I remember you saying to him, it stuck in my head, you know, every now and then saying from a podcast, really six, where you noticed that his office was really kind of clean and it didn't seem like he was, you know, that stressed out. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, I noticed at the time. And so then as soon as this happened, I was like, huh, I'm, I'm listening to that in a different light now. Uh, that that guy was kind of chill, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, Troy is a really nice guy. Troy Price. Oh, no, he's ahead. probably a
1: wonderful guy. He's no. Iowa he's Super nice, yeah. Right, but like it was, it
0: was very strange because we went over to their office and we kind of expected it to be bedlam to the point we were actually worried about how the audio would sound because we thought there'd be just like too much din in the background and it just felt like there was sort of nobody there and I, I don't know. Like I, I don't want to point the finger uh, and be mean or anything, but it just, you know, it just it's, uh, defies belief that uh, things could have gone this badly.
1: Well, you know, I get to be fair to them. uh you know, I remember the caucus and it talk about an analog event, you know, yep, yep. Um, which is part of what was charming about it. I mean, I used to have to, you know, remember we have to go, you were living there, but we had to go caucus on the weekends. Um, so I would go to like Cedar Rapids or Des Moines and then you have this caucus. And but it's very pre digital, you know, yep. and it may be that merging the kind of analog nature of the IRO caucus with the digital age, you know, in this app and and this desire for raw da- data. It just was just impossible, you know I mean yeah. they, just, they just couldn't do it
0: I think that's a big piece of it you know a, a lot of it was uh you know math done in the rooms by individuals who trusted each other and you know a lot of the turnout estimates that you hear when people talk about two thousand eight or two thousand sixteen are actually real estimates and not hard counts of these preference forms that they all had to fill out this year, but yeah, man it's just a total mess
1: I do want to just leave people with this thought that uh you know I've been here in Hungary talking to some people generally younger kind of progressive types and you know, I've been talking to other people around the world. I I'm amazed at how closely they're following our primary. I mean, people are asking me questions about Elizabeth Warren and Medicare for All. Wow. They're asking me about like whether Bernie, you know, will hurt down ballot Democrats. You know, they're asking me, uh, you know, about whether Mike Bloomberg has a shot at the nomination. I mean, man, we've got like a global set of pundits here who, you know, and it's all informed by their eagerness to see Trump defeated. Um, but this is this is be, this whole primary is being watched in a way that I don't think there's ever been a a, a primary process watched quite like this. I mean, in '8, they all kind of fell in love with Obama, and that was great, but this is a different kind of intensity because they're just, Talk about an elect. If you think the Iowa caucus voter, uh, voters were focused on electability, yeah. the rest of the world, they could give a shit about anything other than uh, can somebody get the nomination who can beat Trump, you know, uh, yeah. and that's all I get everywhere I go.
0: Yeah. And uh, so far, not so good. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. All right, yeah. man. Well, I know it's like uh, 11 p.m. in Hungary. So thank you for doing the show. I'm glad your voice is back. And uh, we'll yeah. see you see in studio next week.
1: Awesome. Bye. See you guys next week.
0: All right. See you, buddy. Cloud the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week.